When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 219 from Monday, February 7th, 2011. The Planck Mission. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I am doing really well. That's, that's <laughs> it. That's all I got to say about that. But I can't wait to talk about Planck, so let's just move right on. No chit-chat. Another mission named after a famous physicist. Last week we talked about Max Planck. This time we're going to talk about the Planck mission, designed to study the cosmic microwave background radiation across the entire sky. Like the previous WMAP mission, this will help astronomers understand the first moments after the Big Bang. Planck. Now, was Pl- Planck wasn't its original name, was it? Well, so none of these missions really start with whatever the published name that you hear is. So Planck started with the rather horrid name of C-O-B-R-A-S slash S-A-M-B-A or Cobras slash Samba, which might make right. a good music genre, but is a bit complicated to say for a, a music for a mission rather. Right. But if you were keeping your eye on the Cobra Samba mission, this it's it's had its name changed exactly right and so and so what was planck's goal its purpose it is one of the very few single purpose missions that we've launched it is a intellectual successor you might say to the wilkinson microwave anisotropy probe wmap and mm-hmm. its job is to go out look up and do nothing more and nothing less than map the cosmic microwave background radiation and nearby wavelengths of light to the highest resolution ever done for the purpose of measuring cosmological parameters. And and this is this continuing job. I mean, the what was it the Kobe was one of the first ones, and then the WMAP did another level of accuracy. And then this is going to just do the same job, but but do it again. It's like they're they're taking the same the same spot and they're just searching it deeper and deeper and deeper. I guess in this case, it's the whole it's the whole sky. But but the point that it's like they're doing the same job, they're just doing a better job with the better technology now. Right, and WMAP did the entire sky as well, and it, it's known for creating those weird blue and red mottled ovals that people have seen and. 
this is we've we've talked about this before. All good things come from the cosmic microwave background. Yeah. There are so many different questions that can be answered if you just get good enough data. But here from the surface of the planet, we can't get that data because we have this sky that is opaque to the wavelengths that we're most interested in. We have all of these heat sources that are contaminating the light that we're trying to see, sort of like trying to take a picture with a thousand suns in the room. And when you put all of these things together, it means you just can't do the resolution you want, even if you're launching balloons into the upper atmosphere. So we put satellites out in awkward locations. This particular one is in the L2 Lagrange point, where it's out, if you imagine a straight line from the sun through the earth and then add a million or so miles, that's where the L2 position is. Kind of like in the shadow of the earth from the sun. It, it's not the literal shadow of the Earth, no, but it's no. 1.5 million kilometers away from the planet Earth. Right, right. In a bit of a bigger orbit than us and sort of remaining in that position. Exactly. And we've got a whole show on on the Lagrange points and, and why that's a nice, stable place to put a spaceship. And so it's hanging out there. It's It's already completed more than one map of the sky. And... Watching this mission is painful in some ways because with missions like Hubble, like Herschel, like all of these other beautiful imaging missions, they go up, they send down pictures, science comes out. And you can do all of these different questions. You can do them to a certain degree in a very short turnaround period. But with Planck, you have to wait while it patiently paints the sky over and over and over, collecting data until you can layer all of this data on top of one another to get all of the depth and all of the resolution you need to start answering fundamental questions. And at the time that we're recording this, we actually don't have much data yet, do we? No. At, at this point, they're getting interesting results, but the interesting results have nothing to do with the primary questions. The interesting results come from the things that they have to correct for. So when you look at the sky in the microwave, the maps that we see, they've all been corrected for the stuff that's between us. And when the Cosmic Microwave background was released, this is, and we've done entire shows on this, this is what's often referred to as the surface of last scattering. This is the light that was emitted at the moment that the universe finally became opaque. And there's all sorts of things that have interfered with this surface. And it's not that this is the edge of the universe. If I were to pick myself up and move 14 billion light years to the right, I'd still see a cosmic microwave background. It would have different details than the one I see now, but it's still there. There's always this at the same distance surface that's constantly moving away. So it's at the same distance for the same time, but as time changes, the distance changes. There's this surface that that sphere of space at a given moment released these photons in all directions and we're just receiving the ones that have had time to get to us. Now, as those photons have made that extremely long journey, there's stuff that gets in the way. So we see holes in the cosmic microwave background that are created by what's called the Zinyev-Zyldovich effect, which is perhaps one of the things I've most correctly pronounced on this show. You can pronounce some Russian, that's right. <laughs> so random things get pronounced correctly. And the Zinyev-Zyldovich effect, it's, it's an effect that 
as the light passes through giant clusters, these are places where you end up with scores and scores and scores of galaxies all packed together with gas in between all of the clusters. And as the light passes through, as the cosmic microwave background passes through this cluster, the photons interact with the electrons that are within the cluster. They get affected by thermal effects, by kinematic effects, and all of these effects add up to change the color of those photons so that they're no longer part of this flux from the cosmic microwave background. And so where these clusters exist, we see little blank spots in the cosmic microwave background. This is annoying if you're trying to study the cosmic microwave background, but it's rather awesome if you're trying to find galaxy clusters because galaxy clusters like to be invisible. They like to blend into the mix of foreground galaxies and background galaxies and just not reveal themselves. Now, will these galaxy clusters be pretty far away or are they going to be closer to us? The ones that they've been finding have typically been at... Well, what for galaxy clusters is often called a moderate redshift. And if you read old papers, it's actually a high redshift. It's, they're at Zs of 0.3 or less. This is corresponding to about 5 billion light years away or mm. less. Okay. So not right. huge, but when you're trying to find clusters of galaxies, those galaxies get faint pretty fast. So this is still very impressive results. No, but I could imagine if they were further away, then they would be smaller on the sky, and so then they wouldn't pollute the 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 data because they'd just be too small to see. They're, yeah, and but in this so, case, they're just they're just big enough for us to be able to see them and wonder what these little blank spots are. Right, and one of the annoying things about trying to study galaxy clusters is the largest ones did form fairly early on, but your nice, healthy, moderate cluster, well. It got that way over time. So if we're looking at things that will become today's mid-sized galaxy clusters, in the past they're a lot smaller. And something that's smaller isn't going to have as large of an effect on the cosmic microwave background. So as you're looking back in time, you're looking at things that just haven't had a chance to get big enough to affect the cosmic microwave background yet. So now you say they've been trying to correct. So is this like a process where they find one of these little spots and then they have to look at it with some other method like Hubble or something and see if there is indeed a galaxy cluster there and that way they can rule it out? Well, so it's a two-step process. The first process is is identifying all of these little, hmm, that looks like it could be a galaxy cluster spots in the cosmic microwave background. And so far they've identified 189 candidates at varying degrees of statistical significance. And whether or not they prove out to be a galaxy cluster, there's still defects in the map that have to be corrected for. And they're working on trying to confirm that these are all indeed clusters. And to confirm that they're clusters, you can look at them with Hubble, but these things are more distant. And if you're looking in the wavelengths that Hubble looks in, if you're looking in optical and infrared colors and ultraviolet colors, you're going to see everything that's in in the front of the cluster. You're going to see everything that's in the back of the cluster. And Unless you take a spectrum of every single galaxy in your image, you can't tell what's a cluster member or not. So there's no way to say, I'm looking down a filament in the sky versus I'm looking at a cluster of galaxies. So what generally gets done instead is 
all of the hot gas that sinks down into the core of a galaxy cluster will end up releasing X-rays. So instead of following up with Hubble, we actually follow up with telescopes like XMM Newton and Chandra. And a study looking at 30 of these potential galaxy clusters has confirmed 21 out of the 25 that it's looked at so far. So goal is to look at 30. It's looked at 21 of 25. I saw two conflicting websites on this. The The paper was 21 out of 25, have been confirmed with XMM Newton. So it's working. They're finding right. clusters. And now they weren't finding these in the WMAP data? Is it just because it's so much more precise? It's it's a that much more precise and I think it's just you have different people publishing different results at this point. So some of these were known. Some of these are newly known. So of those 189 cluster candidates, some will probably correspond to things we already know about. Right, right. Right, okay. So so we've got, I mean, I know it's been there. I'm actually looking at the website right now. The time we're recording this, it's 679 days since launch. <laughs> yes. And they've completed their fourth all-sky survey. No, they they started their fourth all-sky survey. And they've published one set of data release papers that was based on one and a bit of uh, all-sky maps. So one thing that they do that's very terrifying in some ways is they don't, don't put out a call for telescope proposals like Hubble might do. They instead put out a call for proposals to get to write papers with their data. So if you have an idea for a research study you want to do, you have to submit for permission to do the research study using the data. Really? Yep. Even though the data is kind of publicly available? Well, it's not publicly available yet. Right. So you have to request the data. But that's very different from things like, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey where anyone can go on and look through it and, and make discoveries. Well, and this is a matter of where you are in the timeline of the mission. This is a young mission. It's still getting ongoing data. It's still defining new questions that can be asked with the data that it's producing. Sloan does data releases. We, we've gone through a number of data releases, but for the first N months, where I think for Sloan the N is six, for the first six months or so, the Sloan scientists get sole access to that data, and they can publish as much as they want. Now they have media officers and things like that that coordinate when the publications come out. But there is still that proprietary period. Pretty much all data has a proprietary period. And we're still in that proprietary period for Planck. And so as we, as we discussed earlier, though, the real goal here is to do that that detailed map of the cosmic microwave background radiation. So can how much better will this be than WMAP? And and then what will that tell us that's different from what WMAP told us? I mean, WMAP told us that the universe is 13.7 billion years. It found additional evidence for dark energy. And as we as we keep joking, I mean, so much traces <laughs> right. its roots back to the to the cosmic this the microwave background. So so when will it find its data? How precise is it going to be? And and what will this tell us that we didn't already know? Well, how good is it going to be? That That's always a bit of a, please, dear mission, please keep working. We really like you, mission, please keep working. So nominally the mission ends at the end of 2011. But there's always that hope that the mission 
will still be bright and happy and working and have people engaged and that this will allow it to keep going. So the main mission with the main set of instruments is is going through 2011. It looks like the satellite will keep being fine and one of the other instruments is extended through the end of 2012. And there's always the potential that it will get extended again. And all of these different extensions, when you add the data together, are what define how good your final results are. Now, is this one of those situations where the spacecraft is going to run out of some kind of cryogenic fluid or or is it going to be able to keep going for, for years and years beyond its expected lifespan? It, it depends instrument to instrument. This is something that you the mission, you have a, a number of things that age out the different instruments. Right. Okay. Okay. So, okay, so 2012. And what, I, what I've been hearing is you will get results that are orders of magnitude better. Now, that's a cagey way of saying we're not going to give you exact numbers right now. But the questions that it'll be able to answer are, I think, where, where the really interesting things lie. So there's things like there's this cold spot that was spotted in the WMAP data. And this is... A, a feature about five degrees across that is markedly colder than you would expect to find something that size to be. And by colder, I mean how much below the average value of the cosmic microwave background that point is. Yeah, and it's not much. I mean, the variations in temperature are so tiny. Right. So there, there's scientists that have argued that if this particular spot was located anywhere else on the sky, its deviation of roughly minus 20 microkelvins probably wouldn't have been noticed. But because it happens to be located in the middle of a deviation that's plus 20 microkelvins, it stands out and it's been noticed. And there have been some really interesting things in the media. One scientist, Laura Mercini Hoyton, she said, maybe this is where our universe and a parallel universe are coming together. That's not the predominant theory. The predominant <laughs> theory is that there's just a giant gap at a redshift of about one that has nothing in it and that gap is is causing that section to appear colder for a variety of effects but we don't know mm -hmm. and this cold spot if it is a super void if there is a giant empty spot we'll be able to tell that there's a giant empty spot using the Planck data and so it won't be a data error anymore we will know that it exists exactly exactly right. or it'll disappear Right. And, and that's always the possibility is we, we've all seen the images of the face on Mars. It looks like a fabulous face in the old Viking data. You look at it with something like high rise and suddenly it's like, oh, that's a mountain. That is very clearly a mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're going to be able to rule out or find intriguing new evidence about the, the cold spot. Uh, I'm assuming we will still know that the universe is 13.7 billion years, but maybe it'll be what 13.777. Right. So here it's it's the continued lockstep motion forward of using the micro cosmic microwave backgrounds. We look at all of those fluctuations, and this is going to sound non-intuitive, but if you measure the size of each fluctuation and make a histogram of size of fluctuation versus number of fluctuations, you 
can actually get a sense of what size the universe was and what composition the universe had at the moment that light was released. This is sort of like measuring the size of a Coke bottle by listening to the harmonics of someone blowing into it. Because the harmonics were created at different moments in time, they all add together to create basically the sound of a Coke bottle that's 20 ounces, half liter, one liter, all resonating together. And we can see in these different size spots all those different sound waves adding together in interesting ways that tell us the composition and the size of the universe at the moment of release. And when you add that together with our understanding of the current expansion rate of the universe, with our growing understanding of the history of the expansion rate of the universe, with our knowledge of the composition of the universe, it's by adding together our knowledge of composition now, what we're learning about composition then, our understanding of the geometry and of the expansion rates, so we're able to beat down all of these error terms smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, one of the things that excites me most, though, is this also starts to put better limits on our understanding of the size of the universe. Hmm. How, how does it do that? Well, remember that show we did where we talked about the universe potentially being shaped like a soccer ball? Mm-hmm. Or a Taurus or uh, a yeah. saddle or a... Right. Right. So there's there's all these different crazy ideas people come up with for the the shape of the universe. And in many of these different models, as you put them together, you realize, well, if the universe is this size, then light from over here that's coming directly toward us should also have had enough time to wrap around the other side of the sky. And we can start looking for smaller features that reflect that wrapping around the sky. At WMAP resolutions, we're able to start putting constraints. With some models, it was saying that the visible universe, what we see when you look left, right, up, down, and measure the distances to the cosmic microwave background, what we see is no more than 4% of the universe. Mm -hmm. Now, this will start to be able to put better constraints on, well, how big is the universe? And potentially answer the question if we actually see light wrapping around. Now, could we still come back with the answer that it's it's possibly infinite? The That's unfortunately one of the, the cases that we end up in is it's either we see the light wrapping around and we know how big the universe is or we place a limit on it and say we are no more than X percent of the universe, in right. which case we could be 4% or we could be 0.00004%. One case we're a lot smaller apart than the other part. Or one divided by infinity. That's like I got my math wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Right, or one right. infinite, infinite of the universe. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so we'll get then a sense further. Ideally, I mean, wouldn't that blow your mind, right? If we actually see the back of our spacecraft, right? Which, which we're not going to see, but we're no. going to see the the we're going to see the evidence that that the uni- that that light behaves, or that the, the universe behaves in this way that we've talked about that. That if you look in one direction long enough, you'll see the back of your own head. 
And there's other random science that, to the scientists doing it, it's not random. But when you start talking about the cosmic wave background, it feels that way. People who do star forming can actually use the cosmic microwave background. People studying the Oort cloud can use the cosmic microwave background. So this is where the all good things come from the cosmic microwave background yeah. come into play. Yeah. They, they've already released a catalog of what are called cold cores. These are the cocoons in which stars are forming in dark, cold regions of dust, dark molecular clouds. As, as we look out across across the galaxy in microwave eyes, you see all these cold cores sitting there blocking your way to the cosmic microwave background. And these represent all the places we should go in and start studying star formation. I mean, it's funny how we've got a spacecraft, right? It's designed to do one thing, but that one thing is so useful on, on so many branches of astronomy that it's going to keep astronomers busy for decades. And and this is where you're able to now and then f- justify funding single-purpose telescopes. There's not many of them. There's, there's the Planck mission. There's Kepler, which is single-purpose. It's going to find planets. Mm-hmm. And it's finding planets, and it's doing such an amazing job. And there is ancillary science with variable stars. And you have Gravity Probe B that is studying was studying gravity these single purpose missions are either answering fundamental questions we just can't answer in any other way or doing things that the science is just so good that you say okay we're going to commit a major portion of of the very limited resources we have to answering this one fundamental question with this one mission right no, it's going to be it's going to be amazing. So so then, if people wanted to keep their eyes peeled in the news for this, you know, the big announcements, <laughs> when should when should we expect to see them? I I'm kind of expecting that we'll see the first round of pretty cool things coming out. Scientists like to save things for big conferences, and I suspect they will either have their own big conference sometime in the beginning of 2012 or they'll be presenting things at the American Astronomical Society meeting. So one of those places is probably a pretty good bet. So look for things at the beginning of 2012. The big, big results are likely to start coming out a year after that. It takes time to go through all of the data. But if you want to follow things day to day, you can actually follow them on Twitter. And I don't think I've ever promoted a mission on Twitter before. But their Twitter feed actually promotes some pretty interesting stuff now and then. So they're just at Planck. And and so, for instance, one of the things that they, they recently promoted is they have a neat-looking mission. And on their website, they have a cardboard cutout model that allows you to put together the mission. And uh, there's some videos posted up on how to follow the videos to put the model together. And it's just silly, but it's fun. So you can you can learn how to do this. And the Planck model was actually designed by Stuart Lowe, who's, who we've worked with, who does the Jodcast and astronomy blog and helps with 365 Days of Astronomy and is responsible for all the ending credits. Go, Stuart. So Stuart built this model, and it's on their Twitter feed, and it's just a great way to engage a little bored child in building spacecraft. Yeah, they've actually got a bunch of these these models for a lot of these missions. My kids and I built a uh, – there was one that came out a few years ago. It was like a 
dodecahedron and <laughs> it was the it was the entire sky. It's really neat. Okay, good. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. So so look for that 2012, probably 2013 titles like Age of the Universe further refined. Astronomers have a new estimate for the size of the universe. Astronomers find where our universe is colliding with another universe or <laughs> or the cold spot, you know. Cold spot goes, solved in a race. Cold, cold spot solved, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks a lot, Pamela. Sounds good. Talk to you later, Fraser. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.